all these faces appearing in boxes. Good evening. Welcome to your home, wherever you are. Idaho, Montana. Yes. I sound funny already? That's good. Without even telling jokes, they sound funny. That's good. I'm really getting it. What? Does it sound like there's a wind blowing? a wind blowing. Or is the connection bad? Can you hear me? Connection seems okay. Sort of a wind slash possibly a buzzing. Oh, okay. Hold on. not funny at all <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny anymore darn okay so that's better right for you if i pass out yeah. from the heat you'll know what happened <laughs> it's a really hot in new york all right it rained here twice got wet both times. Same old, same old. Summertime. Are you in Clapper? Uh, oh, good, good. Brock, well, what's, what's it like out in your way? It's about 80, I guess. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's all kind of relative. Uh, My daughter's in uh, Oregon, so it's been uh, 110 there. Ooh. It might be down wow. to the 90s today. And they're never that. Oof, okay. Never. No, it's crazy. And they don't have air conditioning, most, a lot of them. Because that's it hasn't been in hot. Seattle. I think that's a lot in Seattle. It's in Portland, too. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, if you're on the coast, you don't need air conditioning. Well, apparently the coast is where people are going to survive because it's cooler. Good. Good. Okay. I think we covered the weather so far, at least. So let's begin. 
In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Well, good evening. So here we go again. So, um, Lions Roar, text on Buddha Nature by me, Pomerimshe. Am I in the right place? Yeah. I hear birds, Jerry. Yeah, me too. Um, I believe we made our way to page 154. Any anyone uh, agree with that? Miss C, all right. Assertion of our own position. Yes, sir. You concur? Yes. Thank you. Great. Okay. So, the uh, assertion of our own position has a very short section. So we'll just skip to the next section, which is number three. The meaning of the first line. No, I'm kidding. So these are sub points underneath the assertion of our own position, which would be Meepom's position. And let's see what his position is on. So the meaning of the first line of the stanza from the Uttara Tantra. So going back to page 149, he's now going to go line by line through this famous stanza from the Uttara Tantra because the Kaya perfect Buddhahood radiates because in suchness there is no division, because they have potential for enlightenment, all beings have at all times Buddha essence. Okay, so what is the meaning of the first of those cryptic lines? The meaning of the first line is as follows. The Dharmakaya, the utterly perfect, I'm sorry, the kaya of utterly perfect Buddhahood possesses qualities equal to the vastness of space. Therefore, if the dharmakaya is able to appear, to radiate, or to manifest at some later stage within the mind stream of a person who is at present ordinary and completely fettered, this shows that the Sugata garment Sugata Garbha is present at this very moment in the mind streams of sentient beings. This proof is supported by, by arguments that are both common and uncommon, that is, belonging to the teachings in general and to the Nyingma tradition in particular. So if it if it can be part if it can be present in the mind stream of a sentient being at some time when that sentient being becomes a Buddha, then it must also be present now. It can't be something that like appears from outside and enters into a person when they attain enlightenment. The general approach to this, first of all, there are sentient beings who have actualized the Dharmakaya wisdom. If, 
uh, sorry, if it necessarily follows that the potential for enlightenment was already there, was already present in those beings' minds, for such an actualization would be impossible if the potential for it had been absent. You can't, like, make something out of nothing, right? Uh, as it is said as in, the, in the Dharma Datu Stava, sorry, the Dharma, yeah, the Dharma Datu Stava. Who was that by? Anyone remember? We saw that recently. Who wrote that book? Kareem Abdul Jabbar, Mary Oliver. Um, who wrote that text? Dharma Datu Stava. Any guesses? Maitreya. Maitreya is a good guess. It's close. Any others? Uh -huh. Atisha? Serpent. Serpent man. That's uh, close also. Serpent man. Snake man. Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna. Naga Arjuna, the king of the Nagas. The snakes. Okay, so that he, he wrote this text called the Dharmadhatu Sava, the praise to the Dharmadhatu. Very different from all his other texts that uh, just uh, one line after another of non-implicative negation. Okay, so he's going to, Mipam's going to quote Nagarjuna bringing in some heavy-duty artillery to support his position. When the element containing gold in, in, in this example is there, Pure gold appears through work performed. But when that element is absent, nothing but exhaustion will result from work performed. So if you have a chunk of coal and you work it like you would work an ingot of gold that has lots of dross and very little gold, but there's some gold in it. If you work the coal forever, if you fire it and try to treat it you're never going to get gold. The uncommon approach, so that's the general approach, that's the approach presented in the Tathagata Garbha Sutras over and over again. It may be thought that while the above argument is tenable, it shows only that following the example of crops growing in a field, the mind is indeed able to become Buddha, but only in the manner of a material cause. How does it establish the presence of a spe special potential that is primordially endowed with the qualities of enlightenment? The latter is nonetheless established. So, uh, first he's saying, he says, well, this is a good example, this idea of coal. So, it's a decent logic, but you're using a materialistic like literally materialistic, logical um, example for something that's not matter. And it's a little bit off the mark, maybe not that appropriate. So how does this example establish the presence of a special potential? Because the gold, the gold is not really present as a potential inside of, a rock that has some gold in it, gold in it. The gold is there as actual gold, not as a potential. How does it establish the presence of a special potential that is primordially endowed with the qualities of enlightenment? The latter is nonetheless established, meaning that the latter type of logic, that there is 
a special potential in the mind stream of sentient beings that is from the beginning endowed with the qualities of the Dharmakaya enlightenment. The Bhagavan Buddha possesses the wisdom kaya, the nature of which is very clearly uncompounded. It's not a material thing. As both scripture and reasoning demonstrate, it is neither compounded nor impermanent. So he's, I think, introducing the uncommon approach of this line of reasoning and hopefully we'll explain that further. The argument based on scriptural authority, for starters, he's going to call upon scriptural authority to support this idea of a special potential. As far as the scriptures are concerned, the Nirvana Sutra says, now when he says the Nirvana Sutra, in this case, he's referring to a sutra that's more commonly known as the Mahapari Nirvana Sutra, the sutra um, about the final passing into nirvana of the Buddha, Parinirvana, Maha, the great Parinirvana, meaning, great meaning the Buddha's Parinirvana. Parinirvana meaning the final nirvana as opposed to a nirvana that might be attained while the aggregates are still doing their thing. There's two versions of this sutra. There's a Hinayana, so to speak, version of it, or uh, a Theravadan version of this sutra that's very simple and straightforward and describes the Buddha's last days and how he ate a, of either mushrooms or pork or maybe the both of them that was tainted and sometimes soon thereafter died. And then there's a Mahayana version of this sutra that's completely different and it's also way longer, and it talks endlessly about the Buddha nature of the Buddha, as well as uh, a number of other very unusual Mahayana themes. So, from that sutra, it says, O monks of ex excellent discipline, the Tathagata is uncompounded. And he's sitting right in front of them, and he's the Tathagata, and he's saying he's uncompounded. It's a little bit of a mind twister. If you say that the Tathagata is compounded, you will become Tirtakas. Tirtakas are the uh, um, those who are uh, do not hold to the laws of karma or any spiritual tradition. They're like the uh, heathen or the blasphemers or total non-believers. You will be uh, become a Tirtaka if you say that the Tathagata is compounded. And he's referring to the uh, idea of the material causation scheme that he referred to above in terms of gold. If you say that, that the presence of the, of the Buddha essence is like that of uh, the element of gold in a piece of rock that needs working, then you're saying that the Tathagata is compounded, and that's ridiculous. It would be better for you to die than to speak such uh, incorrect words. And in the same text we find, O son of the lineage, the Tathagata is a body of permanence, an indestructible body, a body of adamant. 
Is that what that says? A body of adamant? Isn't adamant a, an adjective? Well, adamantine a is a body adjective. of adamant. Adamantine is an adjective, and I, I don't know, I, that's an odd construct, but that's what I'm assuming it. It is not a body of flesh. Look upon it as the Dharmakaya. And this is a famous theme of the Buddha that he said even, and that's even in recorded in the early scheme of sutras, is that he said, if you're searching for the Buddha, for the Tathagata, don't look at his form. Don't look at the form of a Tathagata. The true Tathagata is the Tathagata's Dharmakaya, completely uncompounded. Do not mistake the two. And again, he says, rather than to say that the Tathagata is impermanent, it would be better for, you, for your tongue to be touched by the blazing flame of a fire. It would be better to die. Do not allow such words to be heard. Moreover, in order to show that a non-implicative negation, mere emptiness, cannot be nirvana, the state beyond all suffering, the same text says, emptiness, emptiness. <laughs> sort of unusual for a sutra to say that. Emptiness, emptiness. The meaning is that though we search, we find nothing at all. But nothing at all is an idea shared even by the Jains. And the Jains are an alternative sect who interacted with the Buddhists and the Buddha uh, repeatedly and uh, who he went to some pains to distinguish his teachings from. Liberation is not at all like that. And the same text goes on to say, what therefore, what therefore is liberation? It is the Buddha element, something uncontrived. It is the Sugata Garbha. So he's going to give a string of uh, citations from Sutra. So he continues from the Vajrachedika, which is the famous diamond cutter sutra which is part of the Prajnaparamita Sutras of the so uh, usually classified as the one of the main sutras in the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And it says, whoever sees me as a form, whoever knows me as a sound, has strayed upon the path of error. Such beings see me not. For the Buddha should be viewed as Dharmata. The guides are Dharmakaya. Some, uh, since Dharmata cannot be known, me, these things, uh, cannot know. Me, these beings, sorry, cannot know. So the real Tathagata Garbha is beyond comprehension. As these quotations indicate this point is extensively explained in all the sutras of definitive meaning, uh, referring to the scheme of provisional and definitive sutras or meaning. The argument based on reasoning. Okay, so how do you logically uh, support this claim that the, the Buddha essence is uncontrived, uncompounded, and equivalent to the Dharma Ta? From the point of view of reasoning, the following may be said. If the primordial wisdom of omniscience, 
the final result that is non-dual and of the same taste as primordial Dharma Dhatu. If it were impermanent, if it were newly produced from causes and conditions, so he's he's referring with each parenthetical, he's referring to common ways that the Buddha essence or Buddha nature is misconstrued. First as impermanent, meaning that the changes when it's in the state of a uh, sentient being, it's one thing. And when it becomes a Buddha, then it's another thing. And thereby, many Buddhists think that the Buddha nature changes. Um, if it were newly produced from causes and conditions, so the Buddha element suddenly arises from the, the confluence of the appropriate causes and conditions is another way to misconstrue the Buddha nature. It could not be self-arisen primordial wisdom. It would not be freed from the torment of change. And so he's, he, started, he started from this, the point of view that he started this sentence. He said, if the primordial wisdom of omniscience, the final result that is non-dual and of the same taste as primordial dharmadhatu. So that's sort of a given, right? He's saying, we all agree that Buddhahood is of the essence or possesses or is characterized by the primordial wisdom of omniscience. So if you're saying that that is impermanent or newly produced, then it could not be self-arisen primordial wisdom. It would not be freed from the torment to change. It would constantly arise and cease. It would be unreliable. So you would be saying, well, maybe this person could be a Buddha for one day and then the next day they wake up and they've lost their Buddhahood. They're no longer a Buddha. So why strive to be a Buddha when it's it's just unreliable in that way and fickle and changes like the weather? It would constantly arise and cease. It would be unreliable for by nature it would be destructible. It would not, it could not be a sure refuge for as soon as it arose, it would be destroyed. So it's not the source of the object of refuge as in the three refuges and uh, which ultimately roll into the first one, the Buddha. We really take refuge in the Buddha ultimately in the fact of enlightenment. It would remain only a little while when all the causes for it were assembled. Neither could it be a one taste with all phenomena. So it could not be this undifferentiated sameness as all phenomena. It would not be beyond all ontological extremes of existence, non-existence, and so forth. The conceptual mind could not be prevented from arising even within a Buddha. How funny that would be if you had a Buddha who was lost in conceptual thought. Finally, the primordial wisdom of omniscience would not be independent, but would be dependent upon conditioning factors. The faults of all these consequences would be entailed. And since by making such a statement, the error of holding the view that the Vajra body is impermanent is so enormous, 
one should abandon this evil path and say instead that the kaya of non-dual primordial wisdom is uncompounded and supremely permanent. Okay, so here's his first, he's hammering home this first point, that the Buddha nature is uncompounded and permanent, unchanging. Now, if one is, is, you know, which is talking about, which is basically saying, in the mind stream of you and I, we have a completely, fully endowed Buddha, I almost said Buddha nature, but Buddha, right? Now, if one assesses the matter just by reasoning based on ordinary perception, and if one objects that it is impossible for primordial wisdom to be uncompounded, but it, because it is impossible for cognition and permanence to go together, this is a very poor argument to make. So you might say, well, if it's a, if it's a wisdom, it has a quality of cognition, and cognition happens over time. There's different stages to the cognitive act. And so there's no permanence there. There's a changing from one moment to the next. There is indeed a lesser kind of knowledge that cognizes objects and is necessarily impermanent. We all have that knowledge. and we, it, it operates, it's operating in our minds all the time. But this is not the same as primordial wisdom in which the knower and the things known are of a single state. Taste, sorry. And which is endowed with the all-pervading indestructible expanse. So if, if Buddhahood has all these qualities, then it can't by definition be the same as ordinary knowledge, ordinary material objects, and so forth. But this is, uh, let's see, and we just with the all-pervading indestructible expanse, primordial indestructible expanse. For this is a state of unchanging luminosity, an uncompounded radiance in which the phenomena of both samsara and nirvana are contained, the self-arising primordial wisdom. This primordial wisdom is from the very beginning beyond both arising and cessation. This is established by the reasoning of final analysis. It's the footnote of uh, help here. Those of you that can read small numbers. It says, it refers to the conventional valid cognition of pure perception. Thank you. That's great. That needed some explanation <laughs> for, for me, anyway. That's great. So, um, what number is it? 273. The reason in a final analysis refers to the conventional valid cognition of pure perception. When we talk about valid cognition, we talk about cognition that is um, able to distinguish between um, the unreal relative, 
the non-functioning um, relative and the functional rel relative, which is what we experience when we succeed in getting the relative world to work for us. And then the third type is the perception of enlightened beings. How do we explain the perceptions of enlightened beings? And a little bit hard to delve into this to that at this point. But um, ideally, this these sort of things. Yes, the the, the perception of enlightened beings is called per, pure perception. But uh, hopefully, this sort of whets your appetite for diving into these background topics that he's referring to. Moreover, a primordial wisdom of this kind abides neither in the extreme of compoundedness nor in that of uncompoundedness. So it, it doesn't really fit. While, while he's been saying it's, it's not, not compounded, it's not uncompounded. It just doesn't fit that, that dyad. It is, so to say, the great non-abiding uncompounded, a type of uncompounded that goes beyond the duality of compounded and uncompounded, and is utterly unlike something that is just non-existent. So he's saying, if you say the, that's the non-compounded, it can be mistaken for that which is non-existent, but he wants to distinguish it from that. For existent things and non-existent things are both relative phenomena. They either arise dependently or are designated dependently. So existing things are all phenomena that appear. Either um, well, not either, but all phenomena that appear. And um, they appear due to the, the uh, working of interdependent origination, interdependence. And then um, non-existent things are things like concepts, the referent of conceptual mind. If I have a concept of um, the way I think uh, things should happen, like if I have a concept of we're working on a project and I have a concept that it should happen this way, that concept is not a refers refers to something that doesn't actually exist. It's not pointable. It doesn't exist from its own side, and so it's it's uh, dependently arisen designation. Designation refers to the activity of conceptualization. So I build that my concept of the way things should be upon my concept of the way I've experienced things in the past. And so our conceptual mind works in a, in a way of interdependent designation. We can't conceive of things that are, that are beyond the sort of framework of our prior conceptual experience or conceptual realm. And if they are examined correctly, 
they are found to be compounded, fallacious, illusory, and deceptive, both existent and non-existent things that arise either from dependent origination or from dependent designation. By contrast, the Sugata Garbha is the great uncompounded nature of all phenomena. It's not the ordinary uncompounded, but it's the great uncompounded meaning that's uncompounded that goes beyond that dualism. The dharmata of all dharmas, both existent things and non-existent things, and is itself perfectly incontrovertible. So it includes everything. It pervades everything. As it says, as is said in the Mula Prajna, the Mula Prajna, Mula means root, and Prajna is wisdom. So this is the shorthand way of referring to the main text written by Nagarjuna, the Mula Madhyamaka Karikas, the root, the root wisdom, or um, the Mula Madhyamaka Karika by Nagarshan. As it is said in that text, the Mula Prajna, intrinsic being is not fabling else. This is the true intrinsic being. And Nirvana is an uncompounded state. While both existing things and non-existing things are composite. So nirvana is beyond these extremes of existence and non-existence of, uh, and also of compounded and uncompounded. Ultimately, therefore, the primordial wisdom of the Dharmakaya pervades the phenomena of both samsara and nirvana. It is an uncompounded state, the state of equality or evenness. It is an uh, it is unchanging, ultimate truth. This is established by the sutras of definitive meaning, as he just cited, and by the reasoning that investigates the ultimate status of phenomena, which is, in his mind, what he just went through, that reasoning. And uh, probably that reasoning seemed a little bit opaque. And uh, this being that sort of text... Um, we could either spend a year going through it and like unpacking every uh, part of when he presents logical re uh, reasoning, or we could go through it a little more quickly as we are and get sort of the gist of things. And in doing so, also get this, um, I hopefully, a sense of, well, I didn't t totally understand what he was saying. And so we sort of make this mental note of like, I got to go back and try to understand that better somehow. And maybe there's something I can, can uh, study to help me understand that better. Derek, um, when he says it's in brackets, the phenomena of both samsara and nirvana, mm -hmm. what, what would phenomena of nirvana be? Uh, the, the phenomena of nirvana is an, is uh, an uncompounded state. It's a little bit of a funny phrase in in English to think of nirvana as a, a phenomena, but um, if we say that nirvana is real, 
then it's it's a an, it's a phenomena or an experienceable state, and so it's an uncompounded phenomena. You know, for us, phenomena that are uncompounded seems like a contradiction. Uncompounded and phenomena seems like. You froze. Frozen. You're back. <laughs> you froze at the perfect moment. <laughs> oh, you're muted, Derek. You did. So as as I was saying, if if you start from the point of of the place of the fact that they classify um, uncompounded uh, nirvana as an uncompounded phenomena then you know that the way they're using the word phenomena is not to refer only to compounded things. And so, um, at some point we should look at the uh, sort of organizational chart of entities, but phenomena is the largest categorization and underneath phenomena, we have existence and non-existent things, and we have compounded and uncompounded things. So non-existent things are phenomena, and uncompounded things are phenomena. Okay. Within the mind, and endowed with the capacity to become manifest, the Dharmakaya wisdom is already present from this very moment, and in the manner of the Dharmata, it abides free of increase or de decrease. So the only conclusion is that ultimate Buddhahood exists in our mind stream at this very moment and never changes. Whether or not it is manifest and however it may appear as being free or not free of adventitious stains, there is absolutely not the slightest difference in the actual way of being of that essence, of that Buddha essence, whether in terms of good or bad, before or after, i.e. the removal of the uh, said obscurations. And this is so because it has the nature of being uncompounded and immutable. It's not uncompounded, so it's not impacted by any causes and conditions, and immutable, it's unchanging. As it is said in the Uttara Tantra, as it was before, so later it will be. It is unchanging dharmata. It's very famous, another very famous quote from that text. As it was before, so it will be in the future. It's always been that way, it's always will be that way. It's never going to change. Never, 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 never going to change. 
and this nature of the mind, this luminosity, like space, is without change. Craving and the rest are adventitious stains deriving from deluded thought, and they do not defile it. Why all the fuss about this? What's the big deal? How does this make any difference to our meditation practice, which seems much more important? What is the implication of this in our life, in our in our mind, in our practice, in our view? That luminous mind could Any appear. Ideas? Luminous mind could appear at any moment, anytime. any moment, any moment. Yeah, you got to be careful while you're driving. It could happen, you know. So you got to be prepared. It could leap out of your neurotic, deluded mind at any time. Fully formed. Is there anything you can do then to provoke it, to change it, to get it to, to, uh, uh, you know, there's two parts to it. We say, uh, what the, the sort of the question is, so then what is meditation doing? What is the path doing? What's the point, right? And, and that question comes out of the common misconception that the path is, is uh, cultivating Buddhahood. It's cultivating primordial wisdom on the path. We're increasing our Buddhahood, our Buddha nature. And that's not what the path is doing. The, path, the only thing the path is doing is what? In the practice of meditation. Removing obscurations. All at once. Thank you. All right. It's just sweeping up the dirt that accumulates. Right? Okay, my, my connection is unstable here. We don't have to get rid of I mean, the dirt is fine, isn't it? In actuality, there's no problem with the dirt. Right. Like, not only do we lack nothing, but we don't even have to get rid of anything. It just sort of seems that way. Yet still there's a problem. That's that's great. So yeah, ultimately, you don't even have to get rid of the dirt because the Buddha nature won't change. It's there all the time. And the dirt isn't bothering the Buddha nature and the Buddha nature isn't bothering the dirt. But there's still, I love that, he says, but still there's a, there's some, there's an issue. There's still like, what is the still? What is that? that that's the question, right? There's still a... Isn't the dirt sort of also what prevents us from having pure perception? Are you sure that dirt can can do that? Can have that functionality? Maybe there's something in between the dirt and our ability to have pure perception. What might that be? Ignorance or confusion. That yeah, the ignorance or confusion that thinks that the dirt is obscuring our pure perception. But isn't ignorance part of the dirt? <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, it, it counts as one of the clashes, no? It does. It does. It's like I think it it's it includes all of them actually. Right. My my note in this part was under diluted thought. I said, "Well, so what is diluted thought then?" 
which is, I think, the same question you guys are asking. But yeah, like, yeah. You know, yeah. So if you have Buddha yeah. nature and then they're saying, and the rest of it comes from deluded thought, well, it's like, well, what the heck is deluded thought? Well, it's self delusion. You're, you're deluded into thinking the way things yeah, are it, it, is the way things are. Right. There's dirt here. I need to sweep it up there. Blah, blah. But it's like these other things, they, they go through all the, uh, you know, me, Pama, and all these guys go through all of this careful work to get, chisel it down and down and down. But then they're, they're not doing that with what are adventitions sustains what is diluted thought they're just sort of dropping that in there and saying oh and everything else is diluted thought and so i'm always saying like yeah but what is diluted thought then at its very base not, knowing, not knowing that everything's pure but what but why not why would you know i feel like we're getting into like i i this is what happens to me too is i just keep getting into a circular logic with it and i haven't found like a, a base yet which i think is the point but it's still driving me. It, it is exactly the point. Is that is that deluded mind is this tendency, the the defilements and the obstructions are this um, sort of inherent sense that there's got to be some reason why we're not enlightened. And, and we can, and we can we can like continue to ask this question and it just sort of goes around in a circle sort of like well so why do we think that we're not enlightened and why do we why do we think that we think that we're not enlightened sort of thing and so from from their point of view all of that doesn't really exist it's its own mirage it's like mistaking um, you know, mistaking something in the night or in the fog that's not really there. And and there's this sense that there's a we that's stuck in that diluted side of the equation. And that we, that I doesn't exist and the delusion doesn't exist. And it just creates its own little bubble. And once you step out of it, you're like, you look back and you look at other beings and you're like, you guys, it's, it's not real. Your delusion is not real. Your, your, your belief that you're not enlightened. None of it is real. <laughs> you don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> okay. Oh, let's see. Where were we? As it was before, and so it will be. It is and the nature of the mind, the luminosity, like space, is without change. Top of one fifty-nine. Craving and the rest are adventitious stains deriving from deluded thought, and they do not defile it. As this and other text shows, all the phenomena of samsara are changing and unreliable. But though they appear to change within the sphere of dharma nevertheless, the pure essence of the mind, the suguta garbha, is like space. It is unchanging. This should be clearly understood for it is affirmed again and again in the scriptures. And so part of the, the skillful means at this point is just to sort of like almost in a, uh, to the point of um, numbness, just sort of repeat this logic over and over and over again, that Buddha nature is there all the time and it's unchanging. 
and our defilements are not real. And it's not like they're, like he and other authors don't realize that they're just repeating themselves, but it's actually like practice instructions of like, as we're, we're going about our life and our practice and working with our mind, it's just constantly recognizing, coming back to the recognition that the defilement isn't real and all that's real is our Buddha nature and our primordial wisdom. You know, and this gets codified later on in the famous texts, the most famous text of the Nyingma tradition, which is by the first supposedly human progenitor, Gary Dorje, usually called Garab Dorje, where he, he gave a teaching in three points to his main disciple after he died. He died and then his, his main disciple was really freaking out and and crying a lot and uh, he appeared to him and he gave him a, a little casket his like his hand reached out of space and handed him a little casket and he took the casket and he opened it up little box opens it up and there's a little text inside called the th- the uh the teaching in three words or the three words that strike the heart and those are uh Recognize the true nature of your mind. And then the second one is have confidence in that recognition. <laughs> you know, usually it goes ground, path, and fruition. The scheme of like a three-line thing would be like, a, it's, it's understood that it's the ground, path, fruition. This text is a, th- is a ground path fruition. You would think, okay, so the second line is going to present like going from A to B, you know, like, okay, first I recognize my true nature. And the second line would be like, okay, how do I overcome my defilements of thinking that I'm not my true nature? And instead, the second line is have confidence in that first line, in that initial vision that your Buddha nature is unchanging and is in no way obstructed by your defilements. And so you don't have to do anything. You know, we think the second line, the path, is going to be doing something. We should do something. we got to do something. We all have this Protestant ethic in us, right? You know, like, i got to, like, work hard and do something to achieve enlightenment. I have a problem. i got to deal with these problems. So, so that would be uh, attached to defilements, which creates evil. In, so, some, in some way, by, by thinking that you have thinking, all these defilements, pure, you're attached to them. I need to like, clean this self. You're unclean. I'm going to kill you because you're not clean. Yeah, I have to do X, Y, and Z. I have to restrict myself from doing this and that. And, and all we do is pile more and more on. I, I was just going to say, even before you were talking about the three words, which is a great um, connection there, is that if you look at the path as Trungpa presented it and all of the Shambhala teachings, the major emphasis is on developing confidence. Yes. And exactly. so, you know, Longta and all this other stuff. And I, I assume that's the, the tie there is that, you know, that's the problem. That's what's missing. Yeah, totally. That's that's great. Thank you. 
very much his Shambhala teachings are uh, Ning, are uh, Dzogchen teachings, focusing on <clears throat> having confidence in the primordial wisdom that is your true nature. Having confidence that your true nature is Buddha. Okay, but back to the real world where I know that I'm fucked up. Uh, let's see. Tisk tisk, Derek. <laughs> you you have to manifest that confidence. Thank you. I do. You're right. But not today. It's too hot. <laughs> a tisket, a tasket, a pretty little basket. Uh, okay. Accordingly, the vast expanse of uncompounded luminosity is not stained by delusion. It is intrinsically pure within the self-radiance of the undiluted nature, the ten strengths, and so on. So this is like code language, you know all the qualities of Buddhahood. So let's see, 275. For a full account of a Buddha's qualities of realization, and for example, see, for example, Jigme Lingpa, Longchen Yeshe, Dorje Khandra Rinpoche, The Treasury of Precious Qualities, pages 387 to 90. So you have a four-page list of the Buddha's qualities there. And if you haven't read The Treasury of Precious Qualities, and you have uh, some time, <laughs> you should read that. Volume 1. Okay, uh, let's see. And all the qualities of the resultant state are spontaneously present and is inseparable from it, the self-radiance of the undiluted nature, as the sun's rays are from the sun itself. So it is, as the Uttara Tantra says, the Buddha element is void of what is adventitious and has the character of something separable. When he says, and has the character of something separable, is he talking about the Buddha element or the adventitious? What is adventitious? A or B? That has the character of something separable. I think that would be the adventitious. I agree. He's talking about the adventitious stains. What is adventitious is separable. Meaning it's not intrinsic to our nature. All the defilements. The element is not itself devoid of supreme qualities. The element is not just an empty vacuity, not just a non-implicative negation. It possesses all the qualities of Buddhahood, which have the character of what cannot be parted from it. They're intrinsic to it, like fire and heat. All the faults of samsaric existence derive from the deluded mind that clings to the personal and phenomenal self. But from the very beginning, the original and luminous nature of the mind is never stained by these deluded mental states and is never mixed with them. It's only shaken, for they are entirely adventitious to it, like the clouds in the sky. For this reason, it is possible to distinguish these individual defects from the Buddha element and to separate them from it. The Buddha element is itself, in itself, is empty of these defects, 
and is unstained by them. And this is the source of the um, system of Madhyamaka known as the emptiness of other. That the nature of true reality is empty of what is other from it. It's empty of adventitious stains and defilements. So all there is is Buddha nature. The Buddha essence, Dharma Dhatu, Dharma Kaya. Moreover, being unaffected by the damage wrought by delusion, this element is not empty of the perfect qualities that are inseparable from self-arisen primordial wisdom. So even though this, our Buddha nature has been polluted, or our mind stream rather, has been polluted by defilement since time without beginning, they have not affected the Buddha essence by the slightest. Um, that are inseparable from self-arisen primordial wisdom, which is luminous by its very nature. It illuminates everything. And is the very essence of all phenomena. The Buddha element is never without these qualities, for they belong to it in the same way that the rays of the sun belong to the sun itself. Accordingly, given that the naturally present Buddha potential is established as the very Dharmakaya, uncompounded and primordially endowed with its qualities, and given to that beings are able to attain enlightenment, which was proven by the example of Gautama, it follows that the Dharmakaya wisdom must, of necessity, subsist stably without decrease or increase, increase or decrease within the mind streams of sentient beings. For it is established by the power of manifest fact that beings are able to attain enlightenment when they train on the path. And since the Dharmakaya that manifests when Buddhahood is attained is uncompounded, it cannot be something that's newly produced through causes and conditions. And those last two sentences are like the summary essence of the whole argument that he repeated at the beginning. And he even said others say, but it's not like clear enough. They really need to like spell it out in a way similar to as he has in order at least to make him happy. It is therefore proved that from the very moment from this very moment, sorry, the Dharmakaya wisdom abides within beings as the nature of Buddhahood. Okay, so he's dispelled this idea that, well, Buddha nature exists only as a potential in beings. There's no way that that can be the correct view of the situation. A refutation of objections. So he's anticipating uh, responses from others that don't agree. Now, regarding the, this assertion, certain people have objected that if the Dharmakaya wisdom subsists right now in the present moment as the nature of Buddhahood and beings, how is it that the primordial wisdom of omniscience does not immediately dispel the obscurations of these same beings? That's a very logical, reasonable assertion, right? If it's there all the time, why doesn't its nature of primordial um, omniscience 
dispel our delusion immediately. How, how can those two things exist in the same being, delusions and primordial wisdom? And clinging to the theory expounded in the common vehicle to the effect that Buddhahood is the result of which the state of such a being is the cause. So he's saying, and these same people use this 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 logic that the ascension being is the cause or is the ground of a buddhahood as the result such people also think that if the result is actually present in the cause buddhahood in ascension being this is the same as saying that one when eats one's food one eats one's excrement <laughs> so he's saying that this idea that um, because after we eat food uh, some maybe a day or two or more time afterwards the same food that we ate and eaten eaten uh, appears from another orifice as excrement means that the thing we ate was excrement that's the same logic that these people are, are saying when they say that um, this thing about the Buddha nature. And with these and other arguments, they think that they can undermine our position. The minds of our opponents, however, are not trained in the meaning of the extremely profound sutras of definitive meaning. They focused on, he's talking about the Tsongkhapites. <laughs> And he says, he's saying they focused um, primarily upon the sutras of the second turning of the wheel of Dharma, which are not definitive. They presented the antidote to the clinging to reality that's presented or characterized by the first turning. The first turning presents nirvana as the antidote to samsara and the second turning says nirvana is not real doesn't exist in the way that you think it doesn't say nirvana is real it says nirvana is empty it's not something that you can bang over the uh, head of samsara and damage samsara with nirvana so the third turning of the wheel of the dharma clarifies in what way are things empty and in what way are things primordially present things are empty in the sense of being empty of what is not really there delusion phenomena impermanent phenomena and the buddha nature is primordially present okay um It is not surprising, therefore, that doubts arise in their minds because they've been focused on those sutras that present us a, a one-sided view. For all the for the great, even though the sutras of the second turning, the Prajnaparamita sutras are incredibly profound and helpful, they tend to lead one to a one-sided way of viewing situations. 
And so by focusing on those, it's no wonder that people think of the Buddha nature in this way. But the truth of the matter is otherwise. Although the Dharma too, sorry, although the Dharma taught, the luminous primordial wisdom is present equally in all beings. When the deluded mind arises, adventitious to it, it is precisely this mind together with its object that supplies the basis for the designation of samsara. That, uh, that complex of uh, deluded mind and the, the objects of deluded mind altogether is what we call samsara, as the basis for designation. That's meaning it's like that gives us the object upon which we place the term samsara. Because beings are deluded in this way, they do not cognize the dharmata as it is. The situation is analogous to the time of sleep, when through the power of the mental consciousness alone, the appearances of bodies, objects, the vital consciousness, and so forth, arise without limit. The mind of the dreamer perceives and fixates upon the subject and object seen in the dream as being separate. The mental consciousness is unable to understand that its nature does not correspond to a separate apprehender and something apprehended. But even though the mental consciousness fails to realize this, its nature does not change. It's just the same way, in just the same way, even though all phenomena subsist in the nature of emptiness, People do not automatically realize this. Delusion is always possible, owing to the fact that the way things are does not correspond to the way that they appear. And, uh, you know, he's referring to this idea that things are projections of our mind, of the mind. And uh, I wanted to take a second to, to uh, emphasize this idea of phenomena, the entire universe of phenomena, as being a, a manifestation of mind. And normally we think, oh, this is like a skillful means, this is the lower teaching of the mind-only school. But I want to encourage you to like give it a try. Think. Think for like a day. What if everything that I experience is actually a projection of mind? Not my mind necessarily, but mind in the larger sense of the, the uh, subject that all of us partake in. Not that we all have the same exact mind, but there is a quality of mind that we all are part of. And that larger mind is what projects all of the appearances that we experience. And try try accepting that as literally true for a day, not as figuratively true. And see if there's any way to actually refute that that is the case. So do you mean it. that collective consciousness? That way. Not just a projection of our somewhat, own mind, but somewhat, a collective I think projection. It's it's uh, when we when we say collective projection, we tend to think there's like a collective consciousness that is is acting as an entity. 
as a sin projecting things that are then seen by the uh, like little nodes of mind that think that they exist yeah no i'm thinking more like we all it's, have basically a human mind so in some way we are projecting projecting similar things yes right right we we're all we're all living in a common in a projection we're all living within the same projection because of our karma you know so people sort of say well why do we all see the same thing and it's more like why are we all in the in this place where where we've where the same uh, why are we all in the same place there's this projection going on and somehow we've all gathered and shown up in the same place where this this one projection is going on and so we all see the same thing because that's the show that's showing in this universe in this realm we've all taken birth in this realm because of our prior karma and that's the show that's playing in this realm other realms there's tons of other beings that are all experiencing the phenomena of those realms so mind from uh, time without beginning has created this this projection and because we all have the sh uh, shared karma as demonstrated by the fact that we all are in this same appearance we all experience the same appearance but think that through for for a day like you know chew on that and say like okay what if that's not just like a figurative way of like trying to develop detachment or selflessness but what if that's actually the case and what if there is no act no objective reality outside of mind I probably said this before, sorry. Okay. Um, because uh, beings are deluded in this way, they do not cognize the Dharma as it is. The situation, no, I read all this, let's see. Consequently, the first full paragraph on one... 61. Consequently, the ordinary mind and the primordial wisdom of the Sugata Garbha are shown to be related in terms of a phenomena. So the ordinary mind is a phenomena and the nature of that phenomena. Dharmata. Dharma and Dharmata. Similar to samsara and nirvana are dharmas and the, the nature of those dharmas is dharmata uh, is uh, is the same, uncompounded, uh, Buddha nature. Likewise, the state of Buddhahood and the state of beings are shown to be related in terms of the way of being and the way of appearing, respectively. So, the true nature of sentient beings is Buddhahood, and they appear as sentient beings to themselves. Thus, the refutation just referred to, which uses the reasoning of the results being present in the cause, 
is completely wide of the mark. Um, so the example of uh, when we're eating food, we're eating our own excrement is uh, completely off mark from the way that the um, appearance, the, the uh, appearance of ascension being is, is the mere appearance and the true nature of ascension being is Buddhahood. And we can't say that food is the mere appearance and the true nature is excrement. So it is that our argument is proved. <laughs> it would take, you know, we, we should like spend, you know, like a whole class on like, you know, these three paragraphs or something and really work them. But anyway, that's at the time of the result. It's the evidential sign that shows that at the time of the cause, the Buddha potential is present and primordially endowed with perfect qualities in terms of the actual mode of being, i.e. the way things are in their nature. There is no such thing as a cause and fruit distinguished in terms of a chronological sequence. Nevertheless, from the standpoint of the appearing mode, when we consider the way things appear, we're obliged to speak in terms of cause and result. Right? So we have the, two, the, the scheme of the two truths, which is a hermeneutical or interpretive scheme, as a, like a way of just like uh, contextualizing the world that we experience, where it appears one way, things seem to have a cause and a result. But when we analyze fully, we can't make that relationship work logically of cause and result. This is the so-called reasoning of dependency, which delineate, deduces the existence of a cause from the existence of a result. Three, another three. This is the second three under this section of the uh, refuting. Um, no, what was it? This section is presenting uh, the the first. Uh, no, he's going through the the uh, the lines of that stanza. <coughs> all in uh, in support of the the larger heading of the Sugadagarva is present in the minds of beings. So now he's going to talk about the second reasoning, the second point that the Uttara Tantra provides for why all why the Sugadagarva is present in the minds of all beings. Okay, the second, the meaning of the second line of the stanza, because in suchness there is no deviation, sorry, division. <laughs> All phenomena, both samsara and nirvana, are of one taste. For in their ultimate way of being, the great primordial luminosity of emptiness, there is no division between them. The same is true for Buddhas and sentient beings. Ultimately, there is no division between them. There is the equality of samsaric existence and the peace of nirvana. Excuse me. As a consequence, the reasoning of the nature of things shows that, owing to adventitious delusion, beings seem to exist even though they do not diverge in the slightest from the Dharmata, the ultimate way of being. 
This being so, it is certain that beings possess the Buddha essence. It is said, moreover, in the sutras that all phenomena are primordial luminosity, they are beyond suffering and have the nature of manifest Buddhahood. Because in suchness there is no division, the true nature of reality pervades everywhere. It doesn't like only pervade the insides of beings, not the outside, or certain beings and not other beings. A refutation of objections. <clears throat> now our opponent could complain that previously when we were responding to others' objections, We said that the mere fact that suchness is indivisible proves that the Buddha potential is present in all things. <coughs> this being so, they argue, turning our previous argument against us, that it follows that the Buddha potential is present in even earth even in earth, stones, and so on, right? This is a logical assertion. Okay, so you're saying suchness pervades everything. So it has to pervade inanimate phenomena as well as sentient beings. And this is a really interesting one because uh, this gets to what we're talking about in terms of mind, everything being mind. So this we reply as follows. What we call the Buddha potential must be posited as the faultless cause of Buddhahood, the full flowering of the mind that is undiluted with respect to the nature of knowledge objects. This occurs with the complete removal of the two obscuring veils which have arisen through the power of the diluted mind. The two veils are the uh, cognitive veil that thinks the thought that things are real and the um, klesha veil, which is the um, conflicting emotions that arise from that cognitive veil. And since the ability to accomplish the path to Buddhahood is not found in material inanimate things like earth and stones, The latter should not be posited as having the Buddha potential, even though in a conventional level they are indivisible from suchness. So he seems to be saying that earth and stones, while they're indivisible from suchness on the relative level, they don't undergo the path. So that's the starting point. And earth, stones, and so on appear through the power of the mind. It is not the the mind that has arisen through the power of outer objects like earth and stones. Now that may seem like a sort of um, inconsequential statement of, of like, um, well, he's asserting that earth and stones come from the mind and not the other way around. And we might think, well, nobody thinks it's the other way around. We don't think that the mind comes from earth and stones. And the, the matter, the fact of the matter is that everybody in the world who's a materialist believes that the mind comes from earth and stones. 
where else could the mind come from? All beings come from earth and stones, right? They evolve from earth and stones. And when so-called um, the process of evolution got to the point where somehow there was this thing we call life, the materialists don't think that there's some other additive, some other thing that was added, some special ingredient, but that somehow the combination of elements created a carbon cycling unit. Is that is that the description? Carbon units? So earth and stones became alive, they became animated, and they developed a complexity to the point where they were um, they were aware of their environment or themselves. They had sentient sentience. So really, that's what everybody who's a materialist thinks that the mind comes from earth and rocks, earth and stones. This should be understood in the sense indicated by the example of dream visions and the dreaming consciousness that he went through a page or two ago. Now within this mind, the creator of the three worlds, there dwells the Dharmata, the Sugata Garbha, endowed with the nature of ultimate and immaculate purity in the same way that moisture inheres in wetness. You can't really separate moisture from wetness, can you? Inheres in water, sorry. Moisture inheres in water. With this understanding, we can say that the phenomena of samsara and nirvana are simply the display of the ordinary mind and of primordial wisdom, respectively. Thus, it should never be thought that samsara and nirvana are separate. And furthermore, we hold strongly that all phenomena, which on the ultimate level never stray from the condition of the dharmata, primordial Buddhahood, are likewise never beyond the sphere of Tathagata. So he's just rattled off a number of different uh, sort of logics. And uh, let's go through them a little bit. Unfortunately, due to my uh, prevailing ignorance, I'm unable to explain these completely and uh, successfully and satisfactorily this text because it is a very difficult text. But uh, hopefully I'm just trying to, hopefully I'm uh, succeeding in prodding you to try to understand these and grapple with these these reasonings presented by me, Paul, in the hopes not that you'll um, become discouraged by them or disparage them and think that, that he's just repeating himself over and over again and not really making sense, but have some interest peaked. Uh, or on the other hand, will you just take them like lock, stock, and barrel and think, oh, Mipom says this, okay, this is the way it is, and it's done. And I, I went through that text, and yep, he nailed it, and it's a shut, open and shut case. That would also be a very big mistake, is to like, you know, okay, got it. <laughs> but ideally, this whole subject and all the different aspects of it that he's trying to go through uh, should be something that you uh, contemplate for a very long time. Okay, so... Um, now within this mind, 
which is the creator of the three worlds, there dwells the Dharmata, the Sugatagarbha, endowed with the nature. So I'm reading the same paragraph again. Endowed with the nature of ultimate and immaculate purity and the same of that moisture and airs and water. So the Sugatagarbha and the mind are of uh, sentient beings are one and the same thing. It's the, as he said earlier, it's the appearing side is the sentient being and the true nature of that appearance is Buddha nature. With this understanding, we can say that the phenomena of samsara and nirvana are simply the display of the ordinary mind and of primordial wisdom, respectively. So the, the projection of ordinary deluded minds is samsara. And the experience of undiluted minds is nirvana. Thus, it should never be thought that samsara and nirvana are separate. They're not real, real entities. How can they be separate? And furthermore, we hold strongly that all phenomena, which on the ultimate level never stray from the condition of dharmata or primordial Buddhahood, are likewise never beyond the sphere of Tathagata. So don't think there's a division between these. As is said, so then he's going to quote the um, this text called the Ratnaguna Samchaya Gata, which is one of the earliest Prajnaparamita sutras. Uh, Liz, Elizabeth. <laughs> um... Earlier in this chapter, we talked about how um, nirvana is uncompounded, right? But if they're inseparable, does that mean samsara is also? Yes. Oh, you cut out for a minute there. I think you said, is samsara also uncompounded? What's your guess? Well, I wouldn't think of samsara as un- uncompounded, but it would have to be if it was inseparable from nirvana. In what way is it inseparable from nirvana? In the way that he just went through recently of appearance and true nature. So it appears as samsara, but its true nature is nirvana. And so it appears to be compounded, but its true nature is uncompounded. Okay. Okay. You should say, hmm, that's a little fishy. I'm going to think on that for a while, but just can't take these things for granted. I just don't want you to ask me anymore. Okay, so as is said in this, <laughs> the purity of form should be known as the purity of the result. The purity of both result and form becomes the purity of omniscience. The purity of omniscience, result, and form is like the element of space. There's no dividing it. Hopefully he'll explain this. 
this obscure quote. What is the purity that consists in the cognitive subject's freedom from obscuring veils? It is the purity or nature of the object, namely form and so on. This is because the obscurations that veil the subject or mind's own experience only seem to be removed gradually, whereas from the point of view of its actual nature, the mind is primordially free of such obscurations. So let's read it through, and then I'll, let's go back and see if we can unpack it a little bit. Accordingly, when the impurities within the cognitive subject, the mind, are exhausted and Buddhahood is attained, to object, sorry, no, no object or things are left to be purified. That's funny, object and object. Um, it is just as when the defect in the eye is cured, the black lines, which are a symptom of the defect, automatically disappear. They were never really there. Uh, let's do a little bit more, and then we'll go back. Now, um, it might be thought that when one individual attains Buddhahood, all impure appearance should cease right across the board for all sentient beings. This, however, is not the case because individual beings are obfuscated by the obfuscations or obstructions of their own particular subjective experience. And those obs, obstructions are not uni, are not actually real, so they're not universally experienced. <clears throat> they're not. The, it's not like there's the same object that's experienced by everybody. Every being has a kind of perception in which the way things are is as is at odds with the way things appear. So let's see. After the going back to the prior page at the bottom, what is the purity that consists in the cognitive subjects' freedom from obscure veils? So, um, when the subject is free from obscuring veils, then the subject is enlightened, pure, purified. So he's saying. What is this purity that consists in the in the mind being free from obscurations? What is that? And uh, he's giving examples. Oh, sorry. Then he says, it is the purity or nature of the object, namely form and so on. He's saying we, t we tend to blame the object as being the obscuring factor like forms. Forms are just so compelling, therefore I have attachment. We tend to think that, right? It tastes so good, therefore I'm attached to it. We tend to blame our worlds in that way. But really, it's the other way around. Because I have attachment, I project things as being good or bad. And so the objects are pure, inherently.
This is because the obscurations that veil the subjects or mind's own experience. So this terminology of subject is a little confusing, but he's, he's, he's uh, trying to uh, characterize or get us to understand this, the situation of how purification or enlightenment comes about, how purification of defilements comes about by saying, well, what's the, uh, the situation of the subject, the perceiver, the experiencer? of that purification. This is because the obscurations that veil the subject's or mind's own experience only seem to be removed gradually, whereas from the point of view of its actual nature, the mind has been free of such obscurations primordially from the beginning. Accordingly, when the impurities within the cognitive subject, the mind are exhausted. So here's a very interesting statement. He's actually making, uh, providing a description for what the path does. What is the process of enlightenment? And he's saying that the, the path or the process of enlightenment is the exhaustion of um, impurities within the deluded mind. The mind that's deluded by thinking things exist gradually is exhausted. Gradually um, provides no more fuel to those obscurations and their, their karmic momentum wears out. At that point, there's no objects left to be purified. We don't then, when, when the um, when we've exhausted our our obscurations, we don't then have to continue to refrain from this or that because desire and aggression and whatever they don't have any defiling power by themselves. The objects of desire and anger, they don't have any problem. They're not the problem. It's just as when the defect in the eye is cured. So like uh, when you have a eye problem and you see weird things and the those things never existed. You don't, after the operation, you don't have to then like erase all the lines that you saw on the ceiling as you were trying to go to sleep the night before. Now it might be thought, next paragraph, the first full one on 164. Now it might be thought that when one individual attains Buddhahood, all impure appearances should cease right across the board. So that's like an extension of this idea of like, oh, um, uh, Buddhahood is achieved by overcoming obscurations, defeating obscurations, and therefore there should be no more obscurations because um, I've defeated them all. They were real things, and I, it's like defeating uh, an invading army. And uh, therefore, nobody in our country would see them anymore because they've all been driven out. And so thinking that other people are perceiving my delusion, my defilements. But that's not the case, obviously. 
This is, however, not the case because individual beings are obfuscated by the obscurations of their own particular subjective experience. Every being has a kind of perception in which the way things are is at odds with the way things appear. Every being has their own version of believing in things as being real. And there's no fault on the side of the uh, supposed objects. Another question might be at, might be raised on the level of Buddhahood, when the way things appear corresponds in all respects to the way they are, is there an experience of all the impure appearances, i.e. perceived by unenlightened beings or not? So here he's further exploring this idea of, of uh, what happens when beings become enlightened. So, you know, he's, he's going through these ways of understanding that the Sugata Garbha, Buddha nature, is present in the mind of all beings. And so, um, first he went through a detailed explanation of um, uh, uh, coming up with a, a correct way of understanding that, that Buddha nature in the mind of sentient beings in terms of what happens to the Buddha nature when they attain enlightenment. Does the Buddha nature change as they progress along the path? And the answer to that was no. And now he's asking, um, so so now what, ha what do enlightened beings perceive? Do they perceive the delusions that unenlightened beings, normal sentient beings experience? So did the Buddha see the phenomena of this world? Did the Buddha ex experience what sentient beings experience after his enlightenment? If there is, it, um, let's see, uh, the question is on the level of Buddhahood, when the, when the way things appear correspond in all aspects to the way they are, and that's sort of the definition of Buddhahood. Whereas the definition of um, uh, ignorance are and the way things appear are different. The way things appear is that they seem to be real. And the way things are is that they're not real as separate entities. So that's the state of, of, a, of an unenlightened being. For Buddha, it's the opposite. Everything appears the way it exists. The Buddhists don't have any delusions, so everything appears correctly. And so the uh, question is, do they see the, the stuff that unenlightened beings see? He says, <clears throat> if there is a, an experience of what unenlightened beings perceive after you become enlightened, it follows that perfect and manifest enlightenment with regard to all things has not been attained. It's a total non sequitur. On the other hand, if there is no such experiences, if there is no such experience, sorry. He's just laying out the two options. That enlightened being. That's right, thank you. On the other hand, if there is no such experience of what I experience in the state of Buddhahood, in my deluded state by Buddhas, if there is no such 
experience, it follows that enlightened beings are unable to have knowledge of the path and so on of wandering beings. But they're omniscient. Shouldn't they, they be able to understand and see what whatever anybody else sees because they're omniscient and they should see the working of the path. They should understand that in detail. In particular, they should understand the path. It's another way to say it would be like that kind of Indian nirvana where I've reached nirvana, I'm happy, you be happy, happy, happy. And that's not true nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good song that's right uh, the answer to this is that the primordial omniscient wisdom of the Buddhas knows all phenomena of samsara and nirvana spontaneously and without effort as being of equal taste with itself <laughs> that was a little bit unclear so using all this code language Come on, help me out here. Well, you have to keep going. It's, it says more. Thank you. <laughs> From the Buddha's own point of view, they see everything as great purity. And yet, without ever diverging from this vision, they see all that appears to beings of the six realms exactly as these same beings perceive them. So they do see what we see, just as we see them, because all the obscurations of dualistic perceptions are exhausted for them. All phenomena are contained in a manner that is entirely complete and without being confused within the expanse of the Dharmadhatu. So they see all that stuff, but there's a but there, right? Thanks to this crucial point, the primordial wisdom, which is beyond arising and cessation, sees them instantaneously and in a state of equal taste with itself. Okay, so he's repeated this phrase twice now that seems to be the indication of what the difference is. The first time he said, uh, the primordial wisdom, omniscient wisdom of the Buddha knows all these phenomena of samsara, as well as nirvana, spontaneously and without effort as being of equal taste with itself. When he says with itself, what does the, the itself refer to? Primordial wisdom. The primordial wisdom. So um, the uh, all these phenomena of samsara and nirvana are not different from primordial wisdom. So even though sentient beings see all these things as obscurations and defilements and so forth, the Buddha sees them as not different from primordial wisdom. And also the Buddha sees them in a manner of, the first time Mipam said it, he, he described it as spontaneously and without effort. And the second time he said, um, instantaneously in a state of equal taste with itself. So, um, 
the scene spontaneously and instantaneously is an indication of a cognition that doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It doesn't follow the process that obscured cognition has of being, of there being uh, an object that uh, produces a reflection in a mind stream or consciousness, which then recognizes the object. And in doing so, confusion proliferates. But when a Buddha experiences, it's a non-dual experience. So there's no sequence uh, and subject then recognizing object. So there's no delusion that occurs in that situation. This is, is hard to understand even for those who are residing on the levels of realization. There's no need to speak of those who perceive phenomena in the ordinary manner. So he's saying, yeah, this is a little bit hard to understand. So it's okay if Derek can't really explain it that well. Then he quotes from this text called the Bodhisattva Pitaka, which is uh, a text that doesn't exist in its entirety anymore in any particular uh, form but uh, only in quotations from other texts where other authors uh, such as Asanga and his Yogacara Bhumi have quoted extensively from what he says is the Bodhisattva Pitaka. And the Bodhisattva Pitaka really means, literally means the collection of Bodhisattva teachings. But uh, apparently there was, there was one text called that which doesn't exist. Anymore, anyway, the equality of all phenomena is understood as equal by the self-arisen wisdom. Wherefore, the manifest and perfect Buddha Tathagata sees all equally. So, a big part of this equation is this term equality, or what was uh, described earlier, a minute ago, as equal taste. And when normally when we think of things or seeing things as equal or equal taste or equality, we think, okay, A and B are, are the same. A and B are the same. We have two things and they're the, in some ways they're the same. And so I see them equally of equal taste. But that would be the conventional understanding and the um, unconventional or ultimate understanding of equality is that because there's no differentiation of phenomena, there is great equality. And again, from the same source, because it is known, sorry, because it knows the naturally luminous character of the mind as it is, the wisdom of a single instant of mind is called the unsurpassable, genuine, perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood. Because it knows the naturally luminous character of the mind as it is, the wisdom of a single instant of mind is called the unsurpassable, genuine, perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood. And um, 
I think the implication is that that single instant of mind is a phrase because we have a timeless situation. So to isolate the expanse of beginningless, endless time is a, a sort of relative way of looking at the situation. And so this this uh, reference here is is meant to sort of uh, just sort of liberate our mind into space. And I'm aware that people are getting a little antsy and I'm, uh, we're over time. And let's see, maybe we'll make it to the next page, the first uh, part of the next page, and I'll speed up. In accordance with this, the Master Chandra Kirti. So then he quotes the famous Chandra Kirti, author of the Introduction to the Middle Way, a Yamaka Avatar, one of the core texts of the Shedra curriculum. So he's quoting uh, after Nagarjuna, the main presenter of uh, non-implicative negation emptiness. He says, vessels may be different, but their space is one and and undivided. Just so phenomena are many, but their suchness is beyond all multiplicity. We can't say that the suchness of one phenomena is different from the suchness of another phenomena, because phenomena are not separate. In understanding perf in sorry, in understanding perfectly their single taste, such beings in their perfect wisdom, know all knowledge objects in a single instant. Because phenomena are not separate, they don't have to go one by one through all objects of knowledge to understand them. But instantly, they know everything. That's quite a, quite a feat. Thus, the great primordial wisdom, which is indivisible from this vast expanse, embraced, so he's concluding this section on, uh, because suchness pervades all and is without division. That's the, uh, the second line of the stanza. Thus the great primordial wisdom, which is indivisible from the vast expanse, embraces all phenomena and sees them in the same effortless way that the moon and the stars appear reflected in the ocean. It pervades them and sees them in the, in the state in which all thoughts are stilled. And this is the... Self-arisen primordial wisdom of luminosity, the dharmata residing in the ground. And he doesn't mean like the earth when he says the ground. He means the ground of all reality. Will manifest just as it is on the basis of the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, and this is the self-arisen primordial wisdom of luminosity, the dharmata residing in the ground, which once the obscuring veils have been removed, will manifest just as it is. So the the Dharma, the uh, Sugata Garbha doesn't change, but the obscurations change, and thereby there's a different perception of the of the Sugata Garbha, as if manifests where before it was as if, and as if is a key part of it. It was as if unmanifest. On the basis of the correct reasoning of the nature of things, which examines the ultimate, one can acquire an irreversible conviction that this is so. 
by contrast, if one is confined to the assessment of the lesser ordinary mind, one would have to conclude either that there is no business in a Buddhahood, or that even if there is such a wisdom, it would be the same as the ordinary changing mind. One would have to conclude either that the Buddhas are incapable of seeing the world of beings, or else that they have impure perception. These two alternative incorrect ways of viewing the situation and of whether a Buddha experiences what sentient beings experience. It would be possible to establish the single case of the wisdom nature of phenomena and the wisdom that sees what he says it would be impossible to understand the single nature of the omniscience of a Buddha which has these two aspects seeing the nature of all phenomena and their multiplicity and that those are not separate types separate like um, acts of their wisdom but they're coextensive. One would encounter only a chaos of turbulent contradictions and worries and would not be able to sleep well at night for a very long time. And probably you'd wake up with a headache and a buzzing in your ears. <laughs> Okay, okay. So we should conclude for tonight. We made it to 167. A little bit shy of our goal, but I didn't really think we would make it all the way. And uh, we'll continue in two weeks because <clears throat> next week is our retreat. It's the first night of our retreat, which many of you are doing, which is really cool. And many of you are not, but I know that you'll do a week-long retreat either somewhere else this year or with us in the future, or both, <laughs> or neither. <laughs> Ideally, both, or either. Anyway, difficult text, this one, where, you know, I think the, the, uh, the, the difficulties experienced in that he presents so-called arguments that don't quite seem like clear arguments to me. But they seem to work for him. So why did, when he uh, gives these reasonings, there, there's got to be some, like, background that he's coming from that makes these reasonings really have as much power as he seems, as he clearly uh, feels they do. Any final comments, thoughts, questions, concerns? It's supposed to be cooler tomorrow, is that right? No, same. Anything? Nothing? <clears throat> tired, tired. Good. Cooler on Thursday. Oh my God. One more day of heat. Okay. So let's dedicate and close.
By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the regions rest and bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you, Thank you and, uh, for tolerating my soporific presentation. And theoretically, we'll reconvene the night after our retreat ends, which should be a lot of fun for those of us who have been on the retreat. We'll all have like a certain wild glaze in our eyes coming back from the simplicity of all day long and then like all of a sudden coming home and so on and so forth anyway thank you and have a wonderful evening and week and or two and uh, hope to see you soon bye thanks bye thank you